0: an interesting time we live in a time where (coughs) we're challenged both far and near in terms of the circumstances that we find ourselves in I was reading just recently that (coughs) on average the uh, 401k accounts in America have gone down 25 percent in the last year there's a number of other kinds of ranging economic uh, challenges going on in our country And if this were Paul Harvey's time, he would say, we've got bad news and good news. You young people don't even know Paul Harvey, do you? (laughs) Um, He would say, the bad news is that there's some strange objects floating across our country. (laughs) One of which started in the Alaska region, went through Montana, and then in a puzzling manner, had different kinds of movements throughout the country, oddly settling over different military installations for periods of time, until our administration got their act together and shot it down after it left the East Coast. Well, there's a general criticism going on of our administration today on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, everybody's upset about that. So in response, the administration has decided they're going to shoot down a little of everything. (laughs) They shot down, for example, a balloon in Alaska, and they were asked, whose was it, what was it? And they said, we don't know, but we used a $400,000 missile to shoot it down. And then we got a news report from an amateur balloon club, bottle-clap, Bottle Cap Balloon Brigade in northern Illinois. We said, we had a balloon over in Alaska, and you shot our balloon down, and it was a $13 balloon. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can't make some of this stuff up. Right? No, it's, but on a better side, on the better news side, are you seeing what's going on in Amherst College in yes. Kentucky? It's a Christian school of 1,700 students, and about 10 days ago, on the 8th of December, a little more than 10 days now, 10th of excuse me, of February, um, they had a normal chapel service, and at the end of it, some of the students stayed behind and began to pray, and that prayer basically through the privileges of social media spread out in the word spread. And now about 10 days later, 12 days later, that's been a 24 seven non-stop prayer chapel for thousands of people who are coming and praying for a revival in this country. And, uh, that's the good news. I- I'm good with the young people leading us on that, that, uh, that makes that works for us Um, and it really does fit a pattern of revivalism that this country has known about in the 1600s John Calvin challenged the versions of the Catholic Church and said for by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourself not of works and in the 1600s our country began to go through a revival In the 1700s, there was what was called the Great Awakening as God and his spirit began to work in pockets in different denominations and churches around the country. And it was in that Great Awakening that we found the sermon of Jonathan Edwards, which we'll talk about in a minute, which he entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In the 1900s the uh, expanding revivals in this country moved not only into denominations but into the uh, churches and particularly the charismatic movement and for whatever else you think about the charismatic movement God was working in that in (laughs) before the earth's crust hardened in 1960 I was doing my doctoral dissertation at the University of Portland and I met a number of Christians in Catholic clergy who said I'm trusting Jesus for my future so and the Catholic charismatic church was some of that the um, revivals have continued even more recently with the great work of Billy Graham uh, and other kinds of orators who have led the charge to bring the gospel around the world so parenthetically when you think of this country pray for the amherst college and the things that are going on there uh... we could be seeing the start of something wonderful again for our purposes today we've got two tasks we have according to your handout to explain something of the connection between the old testament and the new testament how does it fit together that's going to take us till three o'clock this afternoon so we've ordered in pizza we don't know how to get it online to them but uh, they can go to the kitchen and eat seriously we need to we need to put it together and the reason we need to put it together is because in Matthew 5 if you'll turn there in Matthew 5 we're forced to ask and answer the question what is it that God is doing through the person of Jesus And what is the message of Jesus to those his disciples? We have in Matthew 5, now we are in probably the 10th message out of Matthew 5. And we're finishing Matthew 5 today. We'll likely never get through the book of Matthew before the Lord comes, but whatever. Um, And Matthew 5 ends, if you'll look, for those of you that brought your Bibles, lift them up. Let's see them. Okay, good. All right, we're getting a little bit more of a rabble-rousing of people bringing that back. That's good. Matthew 5, verse 48. We have been in the Beatitudes. We've understood that Jesus has laid out the things that create blessings or joy or happiness in our life. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, etc. Jesus has instructed the disciples that there's going to be hard times and they need to follow him. And we get to the end of Matthew 5, and we're told that, in fact... If we are angry with our brother, we've committed murder. Well, that becomes murder 101 for everybody in this congregation. If we look upon a woman with lust, we've committed adultery. Well, for the men, that's a pretty universal phenomenon as well. And if we divorce for any reason except for infidelity, uh, it is committing adultery. Those standards of Matthew 5 that Jesus is laying out to his disciples accelerate today. They accelerate by noting that we are to, when someone strikes us, turn our cheek and let him strike the other cheek. If we have someone who is our enemy, we are to pray for those who persecute you and love our enemies. But really the brick wall that we're going to hit is verse 48. So look at verse 48. be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect so what we have in Matthew 5:48 is the standard of holiness the standard of perfection that God requires of every man and woman that walks this planet you say well john okay i'm done can't do it well, you're half right, or maybe you're fully right. You can't do it, but there's a solution to God's standard requiring holiness. Jonathan Edward grappled with this during the Great Awakening in 1741, and he was a substitute preacher in London for the day, and he came in, and he preached a sermon that's become famous entitled Sermons in the Hand- Sinners in the Hands of a an Angry God. And out of an obscure reference in in, in Amos and another obscure reference in Deuteronomy, Jonathan Edward developed 10 points to his sermon, a few of which were as follows. Man cannot prevent God from sending us to hell. Two, everyone who has lived on this planet short of Christ is going to hell. Three, every non-convert convert is, con, 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 is committed and is relegated to hell. Number four, life for a person now should not deceive them that somehow they can avoid hell as their eternal consequence. And finally, God has an obligation to keep his standard in heaven by sending every man and woman to hell. Wow. For those of you who have gone through seminary, and I was talking to Steve about this sermon recently, at the end of that sermon, though we don't have videotapes of it, we're told that the people were holding the pew in front of them in terror. And Edward's point is, hell is a reality for those short of Christ. Jesus approached it in a different manner in his instructions. He said, be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. And this is not a message that's foreign to the Bible, because we know that in the Old Testament, which is on your handout, but I wanted you to look at these on the screen as well. The Old Testament was a yoke of bondage precisely because it could not change the heart it produced fear and guilt, but no inward spiritual incentive for obedience. So what you have in the Old Testament is you have, you have a picture of the purposes and standards of God for life. But it doesn't change a person. It doesn't change the heart and the mind and the soul. Likewise, the Old Testament we find has the letter according to 2 Corinthians the letter kills but the spirit gives life and was a ministry of death galatians says righteousness could not come by the law in the old testament you could not catch this you could not be saved exclusively by the old testament you had to look forward from the old testament to what it was pointing to. And the law and all of the requirements of the Old Testament were designed to not only remind the Old Testament saint of the standards of God, but also to direct him forward. So we have, in Leviticus 19.2, I don't have the screen on the back, so I'm assuming that's all coming up. Nope. There it is. We have um, on Leviticus, the scripture says, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I am the Lord your God, I am holy. So the Old Testament saint who wanted to please God had a requirement to live in a holy way, but he couldn't do it. The only way he could is by offering sacrifices that continued to cover his sin as he lived his life. And so the sacrifices became an example of obedience, even of faith. And Galatians says, righteousness cannot come by the law. And the old, excuse me, Deuteronomy says, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. So the standard of holiness, the standard of perfection that Jesus talks about in 548, Matthew 548, was in the Old Testament. It just didn't give a solution. Unless we have missed that before, when we went through James, in the four years that we went through James, (laughs) yeah, you might remember this passage in James, if you really keep the the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And James goes on to say, for he said, you shall not commit adultery and said you shall not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. There was no way in the Old Testament that a saint could avoid the condemnation for his sin based on his behavior. The singular And only way an Old Testament saint could be saved was by looking to the future of what God would do through the promised Messiah. It's no surprise then that Job said in the midst of his struggle, I believe my Redeemer lives and the final days he'll redeem me. The Old Testament saints had a forward look that said, we need a fix. Now, the problem that we have in Matthew 5 is the disciples got caught up in the political environment of the day, and they were looking for a Messiah who could bring back and restore Israel physically, and in that regard, they looked for one who would restore the kingdom. In fact, this is a rabbit trail. I I ran across a student last week here who had been my student 50 years ago. 45 years 40 years ago and she said the thing I liked the most about your classes and I had her in a graduate class was the rabbit trails and uh, I'm not sure what that means except that it says my lectures weren't that impressive Uh, but when I get off my lecture and did something other than that um, it seemed to impact her more but here's a rabbit trail I'm working on right now and it, it just floors me we're going to talk today we really are we're going to end on time we're going to talk today about the hard messages of Jesus and how people began to bail out they deserted him they said I'm out of here this is too hard and um, and we'll end our morning with talking about Peter and his response to that but you remember as Jesus went through his life and ministry and then the death and resurrection, and then his appearance back to the disciples, for 40 days, he walked through walls, he fed them, he did miracles, he showed again himself to be the living son of God. (laughs) And at the end of that 40 days, you help me with this. He predicts the spirit's gonna come and he says, don't leave Jerusalem for the gift of my father promises, which you've heard me speak about baptized with water. In a few days, you'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay. What did they respond? They have seen his whole life. They've seen his miracles. They are talking to the risen one who has been dead and risen from the grave and is soon to ascend back to heaven. And here's how they responded. Lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel where have they been and before I get too frustrated with them I think how quickly I forget the lessons that God has taught me and the faithful way he's been in my life and so one of the things I regularly do in my prayer life is I go back and recount the prayers that I know that he's answered But Jesus at this point with the disciples is saying there is a righteous standard and it's a standard of perfection. And if you want to live in a way that changes your heart, you look to me who am the redeemer. It is therefore notable that as we move into the New Testament, we find ourselves understanding the different ways in which God has worked through the ages hunker down for about two minutes with me on this there is something that various authors have called dispensations or ages depending on who you read it can be as few as three as many as 30 but it's the different ways in which God has worked in different ages it's easy to see there's the age of innocence in the Garden of Eden before sin that was one way in which God worked with man And it was abruptly ended with the sin of Adam and Eve. There's a second age of conscience, which from Genesis 4 all the way through Genesis 11, the people on this planet were instructed in ways of things that pleased God, and Esau and Abel, they did or they did not. There's the age of promise with Abraham, All the way through Moses where God said and I've told you before I think maybe one of the most important verses and chapters in the Bible is Genesis 12 those that bless you I'm gonna bless those that curse you I'm gonna curse and from Abraham to Moses it's an age of promise and God is working in unique ways during that age in terms of dispensing his grace and provision for his people there is then the law and the law spans from the covenants of the law all the way through to where we are now. And it includes, as I said, 513 laws that Israel was to obey, to show their faith and devotion to their God. That's followed by the age of grace. As we find ourselves in Matthew 5 today, it's a trick question, I've tried it before with you. Are we in Matthew 5 in the New Testament or the Old? New Testament, how many people? Oh, you're getting better. You're getting not so gun shy now. Old Testament, you're not even responding now. You're not going to respond at all. It's the Old Testament still because Jesus hasn't died. But when he dies, it's the age of grace. And the age of grace then takes us all the way through to Revelation 20 when Jesus comes back. And that last age will be the age of power of the kingdom of Christ as he rules on this planet. You say, well, John, what's the point? The point is this. God has worked in the lives of men and women in different and unique ways from the Old Testament to the New. And now we find ourselves, we ourselves, find ourselves under what we call the New Covenant. And the new covenant, unlike the old covenant, has provided for us a new way. We don't have the obligations of having to take our sacrifices to the temple to show that we believe in God. In fact, what the new covenant says is, Paul writes, he's made us confident as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, that's the Old Testament, so the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious now? It's talking about our age that we live in. And then a phrase that kind of summarizes it, when Paul writes, if the ministry that brought condemnation, that's the law, was glorious how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory and if that was transitory came with glory how much more greater is the glory that which now lasts see John you lost me on that let's see if I can bring you back in John 14 Jesus instructed his disciples you have the spirit with you and he will be in you. Do you see the difference? As we look at Peter and Matthew, as we look at the disciples in Matthew 5, as we look at the disciples, we look at them in John 6, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit had not happened. It had not happened. And so you and I today that stand with the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit based on our faith in Christ, and the indwelling of Christ himself, who is transforming us into the image of him who is our Savior. That was not the experience for the disciples in Matthew 5 in the Gospels. They did not have the recourse yet to be ministers of the New Covenant. We do. We have more resources than the disciples. So where does that leave the disciples? I think understanding the difference between that is a way in which to appreciate how the Old Testament and New Testament come together. Let's see if I can give you an illustration. I spent all week working on this and this illustration. So if it doesn't work, don't tell me that because I think it works <laughs> for me. The <clears throat> monarch butterfly is an amazing creature that has four stages to it. It has an egg stage. It has a second stage is the caterpillar stage, and that's a beautiful stage. It's about 14 days long. And you're looking at a monarch, soon to be a monarch butterfly. And I want you to envision this caterpillar like the Old Testament. Does that look like the Old Testament to you? Pretend. It's good. It has a beauty to it. It has a glory to it. It has a purpose to it. It has a direction to it. But what if it stopped there? What if that insect died in that stage? Then that's all it would be is death. And if we did not have our New Testament, we would be of all people condemned because we know the holy standard of God, but Jesus never came. Well, the good news is we have the New Testament. We have him who has been our redemption and who is the way, the truth, and the life. So in the imagery of the caterpillar, I like this if you don't like it don't tell me the fourth stage is this this is the New Testament so to speak that's that caterpillar whose lifespan has with purpose moved through the third stage and now this which is the fourth stage that's what the Old Testament is to the new it was good it had a righteousness It had an accurate reflection of the purposes of God. But the Apostle Paul said, when I was exposed to the law, sin revived in me and I died. Without the New Testament, without Jesus, without understanding not only the standard of perfection, but the resolution and purposes of perfection, we too would be of all people to be pitied. So when Jesus went through his life and went to the cross and went to that tomb and rose from the dead, he put God's affirmative eternal stamp on the fact that life begins anew in Christ and takes a beauty and a magnificence that satisfies, catch this, the holy perfect standard of god so as john moore one day stands before christ god the father will say john you you didn't you didn't do that well that often i mean you know you're not going to be in the front of any of these lines but in you i see the righteousness of my son and for that welcome into your place of eternity. That is the stage that the disciples are moving to. You say, well, John, okay, that's well and good. But what's the cure for the disciples? They're told that if they're angry, they've committed murder. They're told... That if they look upon a woman with lust they've committed adultery well how do they get out of their predicament the Holy Spirit you know that Steve is working us through in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit has not yet come to the church and I've got good news for you the answer was provided by Jesus not just in Matthew but in other passages as well. Because in the book of John, which I'm also uh, going through, it's going to affirm the fact that Jesus is teaching about God's work from the inside out. The word is implanted or inborn. That's what James 1 says. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, Romans 7. That's the reason the first commandment is the first and great commandment: to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your mind. because it can be done now through the redemptive work of Christ. Therefore, and I think this is a correct statement therefore being a Christian involves being dead to the Old Testament law and being married. To a risen savior and lord carried on by the newness of the spirit this is the new covenant what the bible calls the law of liberty you and i as to the condemnation of sin in our life are set free we have now the stamp of god that approves of us because of the work of christ And the standards that he asked of his people in the Old Testament and he asked of his people in the New Testament to live a holy and righteous way, we can't minimize that, but it is really a standard that moves us toward maturity, toward the kind of perfection that is realized in part while we're still on this planet. Jesus had a number of ways in which he taught this to his disciples and We are going to find some of that in the book of John. Let me bring you up to speed on John 6. John chapter 3, Nicodemus slipped into Jesus at night and said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus said, come on. Come on, you can't do that. Jesus said, you're a teacher of the law? And you don't know what it means to be born again? Man's born of water, but must be born of the Spirit. Those are words that Nicodemus didn't understand. John chapter 4. Jesus came to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, Give me a drink. And she said, You, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And Jesus said, woman, if you knew what I asked, you'd understand that the water, I am the water that springs up to eternal life. She said, come on. Jesus said, well, go get your husband. Jesus said, well, "Well, actually you've been married five times. The man you're with now is not your husband. She said, sir, I see you're a prophet and a prophet is coming. And in John four, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, you who speak of, it is, it is I who you speak of. It is me. In John chapter 4, the disciples are concerned that Jesus has not eaten. And they say, get him something to eat. And Jesus said, I've eaten. They said, what? Nobody brought him any bread. He said, my food is to do the will of my heavenly father. And in that, that food will spring up to eternal life. So Jesus began to speak in metaphors to those around him, not only about the physical world, but the spiritual world. And as order to stamp that he had the authority to do it, in John chapter 6, he began to provide miracles where he raised the... um, the official's son who was on his deathbed. He raised him back to life. He fed the 5,000. He began to demonstrate that he was beyond the physical world in terms of his authority for his message. And the disciples had kind of had it now. So in chapter 6, Jesus wasn't done. He said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the disciples said, I'm out of here. I don't understand this. And so John 6 tells us that many of his disciples left him. Hard message. And of course, Jesus was talking about his death and burial and resurrection. And when we have the communion, we are representatively participating in his blood and fresh flesh and his work on us on the, for us on the cross. So Jesus at that point, in a poignant way, I think, answers the question that every disciple had who followed him in those three years. What are my options? (laughs) And Peter, bless his heart, I really identify with Peter. Peter said, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? That wasn't just a rhetorical question. For which Jesus knew the answer. It was a prophetic question. Because shortly before the cross, every one of his disciples would desert him. Male disciples. The women did not. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's our answer. Are you facing anything in your life that you think is insurmountable? That you don't know how it's going to turn out, whether it's financial, health, otherwise, family, situations? What are your options? Take it to the feet of Jesus, your Savior. You don't have any better option. Peter's right. You don't have any other option. We've come to believe and to know you're the Holy One of God. So... When you're tempted to retaliate when someone strikes out against you, Matthew 5, take it to Jesus because we know he's the Holy One of God and leave the results of that to him as you act in obedience to what God requires of you. If you have an enemy, somebody that wants to put you down, somebody that wants to level you on the playing field, Instructions are to love them. To not retaliate. To not give evil for evil. But to move to the one who is the Holy One of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why is it you have the resources to act extraordinarily, supernaturally, non-naturally in ways that you find yourself? It's because of Jesus who lives in you and me. For his will and good pleasure let's pray God would that uh, good that we would you'd help us first of all be honest in the struggles that we have and understand them as from you as tutors to bring us to maturity we grasp onto the truths of James the Lord where if we lack wisdom We can ask of you who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to us. So we don't admit that we do life perfectly. In fact, we don't. We understand the challenges of life are, as James said, we all stumble in many ways, but we're grateful for the redemptive grace of Christ, that we can leave our lives and our hope and our direction with him who is our Savior, in Jesus' name.